Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. I'm Harriet Minton. I'm here with Emma Sexton, Natalie Campbell. And this week, we are talking to some truly inspiring women, and we've got a bit of poetry that is going to give you chills. Stella Cano, the executive producer at The Oval House, will be telling us why theatre brings community together. Uh, we'll be talking of the news stories that caught our eye this week, including why Carrie Gracie is a total badass, and what you need to know about big dick energy. And finally, Oneness Sankara, the spoken word artist, will be performing her poem, B. One, two, three, four! It is, of course, time for the news that has caught our eye this week. Um, so the first story that I'm going to be talking about tonight is Carrie Gracie. Um, so if you haven't heard of Carrie Gracie, she is the former BBC China editor who realised when the BBC did their big pay audit that uh, the two blokes who were her colleagues doing pretty much exactly the same job were both being paid around £50,000 more than her. So she took this, understandably, to her boss and said, I'm not very happy about it. And when she didn't get a response that she was happy with, she launched an equal pay claim. It has finally been settled. And not only is she now, have they now after... Um, not only have they now admitted that she was being underpaid, they've also given her back pay... And in a move that I just think is wonderful, she's given the back pay to the Fawcett Society, which is a feminist society, in order to set up a fund to help pay the legal costs of other women launching equal pay claims. That is totally badass. Isn't what it? What a woman. Yeah. yeah. I really loved that. And because one of the things that I really liked about her when she was doing the equal pay claim was she was really clear. She was like, I don't want more money. It's not about me being paid more. I just want to be paid the same. You know, so actually, you could pay them less. That would be fine with me too. It's just about equality. And so actually really living that and saying, I'm not going to go and buy myself a house in Mallorca, which is what I would have done with the cash. <laughs> uh, I'm back actually going to put this out there in the world for women. Oh, I think that really is, impressed me. That is incredible. She's a, she's a better woman than I am. <laughs> Nat- I think it, it, it does highlight the fact that she was telling the truth yeah. about her case mm-hmm. all along. And, and I don't mean necessarily being underpaid, but that it wasn't about the money. And I, because there were lots of articles at the time saying, well, you already get paid over £100,000. You don't need any more. It wasn't about that. What it also highlights for me, though, is that there are other women that can't afford to fight or that don't have a platform to fight and they might not get the same outcome. So the fact that she's donated this money gives another woman a chance, gives another woman an opportunity. And that in itself helps build the movement. That in itself means that shift and change will come and it will happen. Absolutely. And I think also because I know for me, if I was in that situation and I thought, I know I'm being paid less, but the reality is, in order for me to be paid the same, I'm going to first of all have to pay a lawyer to have a conversation mm-hmm. about it before I've even thought about whether or not I'm going to sue just to have that conversation. And then I'm potentially going to be put on leave. Who knows what's going to happen with my pay? Exactly. I might not have a job afterwards. And then I might be landed with legal bills. Well, not just that. Also, if it's a company that you actually want to work for, will you ever be considered for a promotion? Yeah. What will it do for the rest of your colleagues? Will you be shut out of things? And it, regardless of, of all of that, she still took them to task. Um, I I think there needs to be a bit like the Me Too movement in the US where women pulled, well, women and men pulled money together to support those that didn't have a voice. I wonder if something similar could happen here to create a fund for women that are fighting for equal pay. So mm-hmm. a few months ago, we covered 
uh, female employees at Tesco. Yeah. That uh, was it. E- was it equal pay? It was equal pay. Was it, it was for doing di- same pay for different jobs. Different jobs. Different so jobs. Uh, shop shop floor workers were ultimately paid a different salary to warehouse workers, and their case was being taken up by a lawyer. But there are two hundred thousand of these women um, apparently being underpaid, and so is there a fund because legal aid doesn't exist anymore to enable them to? I wonder if you can pay into this fund that she's she's set up. It'd be quite amazing if it's the start of a pot that we could all contribute Chip into. That would be interesting. Uh, if anyone from the Fawcett Society is listening, give us a call and let us know. Um, or we will give you a call at some point and find out because <laughs> we would love to do that. So equal pay, Carrie Gracie leading the way, completely changing it for women. I just, she's my badass of the week. I love her. That's my news story this week. Uh, Emma, what have you been reading about? So I've been reading about women's prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this week they talked about changing... Um, the way that they sorry I'm trying to find the article because I was saying yes so they've looked into kind of women um, prisons and what they're finding is putting women away um, because the majority of them are doing kind of minor offences is not actually helping the situation basically Um, so now what they want to do is um, open up these uh, women's uh, centres where you get support because actually the majority of these women have got mental health issues or they've been put inside for really petty crimes because they're supporting somebody with um uh, a drug problem uh, and they're just finding that you know just putting women in prisons is not solving the problem and we had an amazing author I've forgotten her name a couple of months ago I think it was Caitlin Evans yeah talking about women in prison and how mm-hmm. quite a lot of times they are in prison for minor offences minor offences that are supporting their family um, so I thought this was quite a radical move and a much needed move um, and I wondered if if you ladies had seen it I thought it was really interesting. The thing that struck me about the article was um, that they've analysed what the numbers of women in prison in England and Wales are in prison for, and less than 40 of them, less than 40, are in for a violent offence. Of the over, over, I think, is it 300 or 400... Three or four hundred thousand women that are in prison. Yeah. Less so than hang on, there's a, a official crime. figures show just one percent of the almost four thousand women currently behind yeah, bars are there for violent offences, while the other eighty nine percent have committed minor crime. And that in itself is just appalling. And so I, I, you know, it, the media never really, <laughs> doesn't really cover. Uh, any kind of a politician when they're doing something good. But the fact that a justice secretary has finally said, and I'm sure there was some lobbying on the part of women in prison and other organisations, you know what? We shouldn't be sending women to prison because actually what it, that does, especially if that woman has kids, it's just not worth it yeah. in terms of the long-term change. Because then the children end up in the care system and then it just becomes exactly. a, a massive burden, exactly. doesn't Especially it? if it's for shoplifting. Especially if it's for completely petty crime and petty crime related to some kind of issue whether it's domestic violence or drug or alcohol dependency fix the problem fix the reason that they keep shoplifting not putting them in prison which means that when they come out they perpetuate the same thing yeah it's saying here that um most women there's higher rates of the mental health problems and 60 percent have experienced domestic violence at some point in their lives yeah. so you're kind of you're not yeah th- this is really i feel this is really progressive and really looking at how we how you know how we change offenders i don't think anybody's really an offense there's not many offenders in there who are there just because they are really bad people or psychopaths a lot of people are committing crimes because of a bad situation they're in well i think we need to be specific to women because i think the stats for men are slight well, are different and so for women yes uh, you know they're not they're not violent people they're not out here no. murdering people or you know well we're not raised women are not raised in a culture of celebrating violence you know and that for me is the problem which is i really like i really applaud this i think it's excellent i'm really happy to see it but what i also want to see is similar support for men so i want to see similar support for men which actually says do you know what if you have been raised in a culture which celebrates violence and says that's what masculinity is about let's help you because i completely believe that you know Putting a woman in prison for shoplifting to support an addiction that she has because she's in a life of prostitution, all these other stories, is just not worth it. But I also think until we really look at how we rehabilitate men as well, Mm -hmm. then the stories are going to keep happening. Well, the whole cycle of rehabilitation, full stop. And so 
they should be opening up men's centres too yeah. that do the same thing. Anyone mm-hmm. that is going in for these crimes, whether it's shoplifting or, or that petty crime to feed an addiction, regardless of what the addiction is, that needs to be stemmed. Yeah, it's yeah. an archaic way, isn't it, of reprimanding people, I think, that so we just a, know doesn't work. It's a good work. step forward. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was actually Caitlin Davis was the author we had in her book, Bad Girls, A History of Rebels and Renegades, looked at women in Holloway Prison. Um, it's really worth a read if you want to know more about actually why we are in a situation with so many women in jail. Um... Our final story this week, well, not our final one, we've got another one coming up with rape, our final one for this section, it's just it's just bringing me so much joy. <laughs> uh, so I said we were going to tell you about BDE. Matt, what is BDE? Can't so say the D word. So obviously, I, I got this story. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I don't know why I got this story. Um, Ariana Grande uh, tweeted, reportedly tweeted this week that her boyfriend had BDE. Now, if we know that the B stands for big and the E stands for energy, the D is a, basically is related to the word penis. So those of you at home, figure out for yourself. Uh, Very well done. And so the def- there is actually a definition around this. So the Urban Dictionary says that BDE is confidence without cockiness. It is never misplaced and it cannot be simulated. It is the sexual equivalent of writing a check for £10,000 knowing you've got it in the bank. It's that kind of (laughs) swagger. And then there are a list of men uh, with BDE, apparently. So Idris Elba, Chris Evans, not UK Chris Evans, the other one. The Hollywood actor. The Hollywood actor. Tom Hardy, Robert Downey Jr., The Rock. And Harry Styles is on here. I do not agree. I've Mm. chipped in my own of Ryan Ryan Reynolds uh, in Deadpool for me. He is complete BDE. I'm so there. And I I think it's true. I think you can see a man with BDE coming towards you. So I have a question. Do you have to... Actually, I have two questions. One, do you have to be a man to have BDE? And two, if you are a man, do you have to have a big penis in order to have BDE? Ooh, good question. I would say on the second point, I don't think you do. So what was the second point again? Do you have to have a big penis in order to have BDE? Oh, no. No, no, no. no. I think you can fake it till you make it. <laughs> but I don't even think it's about faking it. I don't even think it really is about the extremity or the size it's of just your extremity. It's an alter ego, isn't it? It's the way, it's the swag. It's the way <laughs> it's you walk into a room. So, it's the way your shoulders kind of fall back. It's the confidence of which you sit at a table. So has Beyonce got it all wrong with Sasha Fierce? And really, we need to be channeling no, the But she calls herself huge... King Beyonce. So so she figured it out. She's like, <laughs> she, I got BDE. <laughs> and yeah. So, king, not queen. She does say queen. Queen? But she's done some stuff where she calls herself a king mm. as well. And so I don't I don't actually think it is related. It's not It's not biological, gender specific. Well, I think it's not male, female, female version. No, no. I don't feel comfortable. Like, I feel like I want to channel my BDE, but I don't feel... There's a little bit of me which is like, does this just feed into that kind of swinging penis st- you know, stereotype <laughs> from the 1980s? Oh, I've got no, such a because the definition is different. It's not, it's not, uh, it says confidence without cockiness. Mm. This isn't, because they've also said... Ironically. Yes. There, there's a... <laughs> yeah, there's irony in there. There's also... Uh, Little D energy yeah, and we've all mediocre met, we've D all met energy. people with LDE, haven't we? Yeah, so LDE and MDE. I'm really good at spotting the LDE. I'm going to get better at spotting the BDE. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I think it's uh, something that we should all have in mind should the we put next it on time you size profiles? someone up. Just kind of like, are you <laughs> must, BDE, must have MDE <laughs> or LDE? Do you think I can add it to my LinkedIn profile? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I can. You might have remembered a few weeks ago, we had the incredible Pornabelle journalist on the show talking, well, she was here co-hosting with us. Um, And this week she wrote a really interesting article about what it's like to grow up as an Asian girl in the UK. She is here on the phone with us now to talk to us a bit more about it. Hi, Porna. Hello. Hi. Good evening. Hello. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the article and what inspired it. So I um, was reading uh, a Sunday paper um, and it was this, you know, really lovely, um, uh, you know, the kind of like women's journalism that covers uh, the experience of being a girl and just generally, Mm -hmm. I think it was actually an article about sex, to be honest. And then my phone pinged and I got this uh, news alert that, um, you know, uh, a roast, a Sunday roast, no longer the favourite meal um, in British households, it was curry. 
And it sounds really silly, but it basically, like, I stopped laughing at it. And then I just kind of, it really took me back to the days of, you know, when I was at school. And then subsequently, like, those big um, kind of emotions around that. Because curry was obviously, my background is my parents are Indian. And this duality, actually, that I had um, throughout a lot of my childhood about my Indian or my Asian self, um, and actually, you know, the kind of the self that you would present at school. So um, I was reading this gorgeous story about, you know, the experience of being a girl. And then I thought, actually, you know what, this is the, dr- the dream, really, of what I thought being a girl should be like. But it's not actually my story of girlhood. Um, and then so, so I wanted to just write this piece that was kind of, you know, th- this, these experiences and this, these stories that, we have, um, you know, as a result of kind of compartmentalizing um, your culture when you are in a predominantly Western or white um, country or society is something that I've mainly only really spoken about with my other Asian mates who've gone through, you know, very similar experiences. Um, and I just felt that, you know, it, I really wanted to be able to actually chart and write about that um, on a mainstream website like The Paul, alongside which sits lots of other stories about being a woman. So, Pauline, can you give me an example of what you mean? Yeah, sure. So, um, so boys was was a huge one uh, for us, right? So, like, I would say probably 90%, if not 100% of most um, Asian, the parents of Asian uh, girls uh, would not be cool with, you know, your daughter um, dating a boy. Um, and I mean that like if you're talking about girlhood from, you know, something like 13 to 18 or whatever. And so, you know, you'd kind of go to school and there'd be this boy that you'd like and, you know, you'd kind of like talk to your mates about it and, you know, just secretly like stalk him from a corner. And then, and you know, and there'd, there'd be this like whole picture that you would paint of, you know, what would happen if you got together. But the reality is that, you know, your parents would kill you if you got together uh, with a boy or if they saw you talking to a boy. It was definitely heavily frowned upon. But you were kind of stuck in this weird situation where, on the one hand, you know, you were sort of presenting this um, persona to your friends, your predominantly white friends at school that, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I'm in love with this boy and I'd love to get with him if only I could. But you knew actually the reality is it wasn't a possibility. But is that just an Asian experience or is that an experience of anyone that grew up with strict parents? So if you grew up Catholic, it would have been exactly the same. Well, it wasn't. It's not just about boys, though. It's about so food, for example, was a was a huge thing, right? So, like, we were kind of like being teased about your clothes smelling like curry, or um, you know, curry has such a strong smell. That was something that was used um, to single us out. So, even if your clothes didn't necessarily smell of curry, it was something that you were kind of made um, fun about when you were at school. Um, similarly, you know, things around like clothing or makeup and basically what you just ended up having to doing or what you had to do was to sequester this like really formative um, part of yourself that you wanted to kind of experience with the rest of your friends Mm. but at home you kind of weren't really allowed to bring that stuff back to your home so you kind of on one hand lying to your parents about what was going on but you were also lying to your friends about how strict they really were. Paulna, when you look back now and reflect, um, how damaging do you think it was for you growing up to have to live with this like dual identity? Like you say, you sort of got, um, you know, one persona when you're at school, one persona when you're with your friend, when you're with your family. When you look, reflect back now, what do you what do you think the damage was? Um, I think the damage is you're never really like so now um, I don't compartmentalize my life. Right. So when I'm operating in like the workspace or my dating life or whatever that is. Um, I'm kind of standing in like my full power and identity of who I am as a person. And I, and I feel that, like I feel how strong it is. When you are someone who is sequestering bits of your life away, so you're, you're just, firstly, you're in a constant state of worry that someone's going to find you out, you know, like someone's going to know the truth about you and then no one's going to like you anymore. Um, so you can't really draw on all of those amazing things in your life. So your culture, for example, doesn't become something that empowers you. It becomes something that you're ashamed of. And similarly, when you're at home, you know, you can't draw on the confidence of the things that you display, like, let's say, when you're not at home, because you're not really sure that those are the things that are going to be respected or approved of. So you're never truthfully 
yourself and it takes a lot to be able to overcome that. Do you think girls growing up now are going to have a different experience of girlhood? Do you think things are getting better or do you think that's only sort of perhaps a London-centric point of view? Um, I mean, I think definitely like that kind of conservatism um, definitely lessens, you know, the the more generations you have, especially like when your parents uh, are immigrants, um, you know, the you've got like, for example, whole families that have only ever known what it's like to be raised in Britain, right? So they're not terrified of, of losing like the ideals or the values or whatever from the homeland, which is what drove a lot of that kind of behavior. But, um, you know, there are still other things that affect your experience, you know, of um, of being a girl. And so, for example, nowadays, it is still not a very common thing to have the experience of a British Asian girl written about uh, regularly in mainstream publications. And I feel like I realize that's a slightly different thing. But that is the reason why I wrote the article, because um, on the one hand, that conservatism may be going down, but the representation of, um, for me anyway, British Asian women in like modern day places, whether that's TV or, or journalism, isn't hugely commonplace. Do you think that representation of uh, British Asian women in the media, is it still very stereotypical? Because when you were saying that, I was thinking, can I think of one actress who is British Asian and just not in some way just talking about her Asian heritage and I was finding it quite hard um yeah I mean well you've got we've got a big problem with depiction so for example you know if any of you watch The Good Wife right like um there is a character called Kalinda who's you know uh very highly sexual but she is sexually dysfunctional um and she is literally the only person uh that I've really seen um who's an Asian actress who's presented in that way but it's it's still dysfunction and then at the other end of the scale, you know, you've got um, uh, Asian women who are portrayed um, as being, you know, fairly conservative, like our sexuality, for example, is not a huge part of how we present ourselves. And I kind of wonder about that. Like, I wonder about that depiction and what that says to younger women and how comfortable they feel, for example, in their own bodies and, and so on. And, and yeah, I mean, like, even something like Love Island, for example. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't think Love Island is, you know, is hugely cerebral. Um, but We're going to have some... a good 10 minutes debate yeah. on it in a second, Paula, so don't knock <laughs> it now. Definitely, you know, um, whatever, you know, your ethnicity or whatever, there's something to be said for the fact that, like, okay, I can only speak on behalf of the Asian community, but we're the second biggest ethnic group in the UK and there is not an, there's not an Asian person on that show. Um, so uh, there's definitely no Asian women on that show. So, yeah, so it, it unfortunately it all knits together um, and it does end up having, uh, you know, we have these weird pockets where we're not visible and our experience is not Porna, particularly visible. Would you like to see an Asian woman on that show? I mean, we, it was a hot debate. <laughs> so so, so let, me, let me expand. Would you like to see an Asian yeah. woman on that show in a bikini, choosing different men, and um, because she is the only Asian woman, therefore yeah. she then becomes the stereotype. Um, well, having seen what's been happening with um, Samira, mm-hmm. uh, which has just been hideous, I would never really want to subject like another woman uh, to what she's had to experience, That's right? Where I'm um, at. And mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. However, what I would say is that okay, just because I don't watch. Um, Love Island or, or for example it's a stereotype for a reason that a lot of like news presenters are Asian yeah. now um, okay great I watch the news that's wonderful but I just think <laughs> if we're talking about representation you know who am I to be so snobby about like where that represent- representation sits considering how popular Love Island is and and for me like I can't believe these words are literally coming out my mouth. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, me, but, they... <laughs> but if she was not chosen how would you yeah. then feel well I think it would be I, I think it would feel horrible because obviously that experience is also my experience exactly. right like on some level yeah however what is the alternative like I, I mean we're having we're having a massive I don't mean that it's right for a woman to be a sacrificial lamb for us to be able to talk about race, um, you know, on a national platform or at, a, at the level that it has been. But and it's and it's horrendous that it has to be like this. But how else are we going to talk about it? 
I think that's a great point. Porna Bell, thank you so much. If you want to read Porna's article, it is in the pool at the moment. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. Uh, so we have reached the part of our show where we get somebody truly inspirational and amazing in to chat to us. Today's guest is Britain's first black female executive producer of any theatre. She is the executive producer of Oval House. Active patrons include Piers Brosnan. She mentors women across the world in the arts and... She uses something called a psychodynamic approach. We're going to work out what that is. Joining us today, we have Stella Canu. Hi, Stella. Hello. <laughs> uh, so let's start really simply. For anyone who is not part of the theatre world, what does an executive producer do? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially everything. And in lots of different theatres, it's different um, what that job entails. But for us at Oval House, because we're moving to a new building that we're constructing, wow. um, my role includes kind of overseeing all of the artistic activities. But in this particular instance, because of the move, I'm also responsible for kind of transitioning us into the new building like as an organization and artistically and and that's slightly different so yeah I get to do all the fun stuff and all the not so fun stuff. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about Oval House Theatre. What's the history of it? Okay, so we are in our 55th year. So, yeah, we celebrate 55 years this year. Um, We are a politically driven theatre. So we're interested in movement, movements, voices, people whose voices aren't always heard through the mainstream. We're also interested in um, engaging with contemporary issues with theatre, using not just straight theatre, but theatre that might be devised, that might be mixed with music, that might be mixed with other art forms to kind of express and tell a story in a different way. So we're interested in exciting, new, relevant, important, powerful voices that um, often aren't heard. Amazing. And how did you become part of the theatre world? Because for me, when I think of the theatre world, I do tend to think of that really traditional white middle class your father was an actor your mother was an actor you mean a lovey. Is a director a lovey that a lovey. is exactly the word i'm really sorry to say i'm a lovey in disguise <laughs> <laughs> i am still a lovey <laughs> do you call everyone darling i hug everyone <laughs> well you know the other thing about about theater in britain is that you know there's stuff that happens on the stage and that often gets a lot of publicity but most theaters up and down the country will have a community program of some sort or a learning program that goes into schools and that's often how a lot of us come into contact with theatre and I was no different in that sense except the Oval House was my childhood theatre I lived just behind um, behind the theatre so me and my sisters would go to Oval House all the time and 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 you know I, I remember the first day I went to Oval House you know following my big sister and she had to have all of our siblings like with her around the day but she was going to a theatre to meet somebody and as soon as the doors opened we were like what's that smell it was aubergines but we'd never (laughs) smelt it before so you know we were used to stockfish and African soup and in this building was this this really strange smell and then there were loads of people kind of milling around and doing things and every room had something happening in it. It was mostly a lot of circus in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but it was just like a really heady environment. We were like, what the hell is this? And then over time, you know, going there several times, you're like, these people are actually working. Like, you know, you go in and you're like, there are adults playing in this place. And then it's like, man, they're actually working. And then over time, you know, going back and forwards to... Oval House during especially the the 80s where I became a little bit more politically motivated and a a little bit more politically literate 
you know, it also seemed to coincide with a time where community theatre was developing. We were talking about multiculturalism. We were using theatre and culture to express those things for the first time. And so Oval House then began to, you know, have workshops by these really amazing um, companies of colour, um, LGBT companies who would put on workshops. So I started to go to workshops and I'd be like, oh my God, this stuff is serious and you can actually make change and you can actually write something that pe really touches people and calls people to action. Um, and so I kind of had done all this stuff and then being of Nigerian heritage, um, you know, the questions from my mum were, engineer, lawyer, doctor, which one is it? And I didn't have the heart to say what I really wanted to do. So I kind of, I, I kind of fudged it slightly and, um, and ended up going to Aberystwyth to study library studies because I thought, you know, that was my leap from wanting to be a writer to going, oh, books, yeah, books, books, libraries, libraries, libraries. Okay, that could be a real job. Yeah, I'm going to be a librarian, mum. And my mum was like, mm, that's not disgraceful. You can do that. <laughs> so I went. <laughs> I love that. I think it's such a kind of it's such it's just that moment where you're like I really want to do this thing but I'm gonna to have to get around my mum yes, somehow absolutely. <laughs> absolutely and you know it's, it's it's a really important point because often parents don't think that the arts is a viable career however its contribution to the economy is huge it's in yeah. the millions and billions and so therefore um you know that's a really uh it's something that oval house is also really keen on is making sure that there's that involved so i really want to talk to you more about how we get more people involved into the arts because i think it is incredibly badass the way you do it uh, and so we are going to discuss all of that plus a little bit more coming up here on badass women's hour Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton here on Talk Radio. And we are also this week joined by the amazing Stella Canu, executive producer at the Oval House Theatre. Hello, Stella. Hello. hello. Uh, so before the break, we were talking about how you came to be part of the theatre world. And I loved the story of kind of telling your mum you're going to go and be a librarian and then <laughs> slightly sidestepping. <laughs> How, what was your first job? What was your first job in the theatre? Um, well, I would... Oh, that's... In a way that I always make the connection that while I was... While I was going to Oval House and learning, I was also doing quite a lot of youth work. Yeah. And that kind of crossed over with arts. Um, and then I kind of... So so for me, in my head, that is when, I, when it began. It began by um, looking at how... I was using arts of all kinds and it wasn't just theatre to kind of act as a kind of intervention for lots yeah. of young people um, and a connector between these small communities of of young people who had things to say and what needed to do things. Um, so for me, that was my first job. But I guess in, in reality, the first job that I really saw it 
um, myself as being part of a the sector, a big sector was I worked for Carpool Citizens Theatre Company, mm. um, and that was that was my first job with ambition. That had I had a massive target to reach. It was all about engaging two thousand um, uh, people who had never ever been engaged in the arts for the year two thousand, and I had this target of two thousand people to engage, um, working specifically with homeless, ex-homeless, people who were living in hostels, um, some new migrants and refugees, and trying to encourage them to come to the theatre over a space of what felt like a month, but it wasn't. It was probably, (laughs) yeah, yeah, about a two-year project. Um, And that that was probably my first real one where I thought, okay, this is about impact and this is about doing something really, really important. I think that's an important point, though, because some people might know about Cardboard Citizens and others might not, but it is a wonderful organisation. I think Kate Winslet was your Mm. uh, patron patron, for a while. We were based in the same building as them a few years ago, and that's how I came across them. And, Yeah. yeah just fabulous work because going back to your point around lovies how do you make make sure something as as everyday as theater as performance Mm. as a conversation how do you make sure that everyone can access it and it's a a great in yeah yeah so anyway i stopped your i stopped the journey so you were there (laughs) and then where did you go oh you know I, i always worry about doing my journey because because i've done lots and lots and lots of things and i'll tell you for why first and then i'll kind of talk a little bit there there was a there's a real difference in a sector that has less than five percent of artists are people of color um and and at management level it's even less um however you know 17 percent in the whole of the sector and that's you know volunteering that's contracts that's potentially cleaning um uh, you know, just all of the low level mm-hmm. um, entry points that are, exist. So for me, I was really acutely aware really early on that I might be overlooked for mentoring, that I felt I needed to be able to really bring some stuff out, but that people would still look at me as being really capable. And so I could get the work and try and learn what I needed to learn in those spaces. So I moved around a lot because I felt like if I stayed in one organisation, I would become the thing of that organisation and I wouldn't learn the things that I needed to learn to be able to support what I thought was really important, which is black artists and sustainability of black art. Um, so yeah, I moved around loads. Do you know what? That's accidentally a brilliant strategy because one of the things they now know in terms of research is that the reason some women women earn less than men is because we don't move around as much. Mm. And actually getting that experience, getting those promotions, yeah, yeah. best thing you do yeah, for your career. Absolutely. And moving I had to move out of London, so I've been all over just trying to gather that experience. And what that often what that often meant is that, you know, I'm not saying it was easy outside London but but most organizations if they were really really desperate and saw my bag of tricks they'd be like okay we'll let her in (laughs) let her in she's got all the bag of tricks we don't know what she's coming with we suspect there might be something a little funky going on (laughs) and they'd let me in um because i spent a lot of time really building that toolkit and being able to also talk about the toolkit that i had and being able to recognize what difference i could kind of contribute um while at the same time often going into challenging environments because often that organization might have been on its last legs often that organization really what i should have said is like just close up shop (laughs) (laughs) it's okay have a party we can say goodbye but i'd go in and try and do stuff you know um so yeah that's yeah it's a really good strategy but um it has its it has its downpoints as well yeah stella you're really passionate about mentoring um Mm -hmm. now can you tell us a bit about that because i think um there's a lot of benefits that come to mentoring, but I think what's what's quite hard is when you're a person in your position is how do you decide who you're going to mentor? Do you do that formally? Um, I, I just think a lot of our listeners are probably looking for yeah. a mentor or they might be wanting to mentor and just see if you had any tips or guidelines. I mean, it's a huge sector. It's a huge... Um, it's, and, you know, most people run coaching practices as a business. Um, I don't. Um, I'm much more informal. Um, and partly that's to do with my style and and to do with what I'm looking for. You know, I'm trying to place my jewels in particular places. And there is a process and I look for people with heart. I look for people who have a pounding and that's not about passion. That's not about drive. That's about love and care and care for what they do. And that can be for any art form at any level. 
um, in any kind of situation. I look for that and I look for a kind of rawness that also is about a desire to fight for something because, um, you know, I'm interested in, I have this term that I use and I'm interested in building tender warriors. Oh, nice. You know, people that can move with love, Mm. can understand and speak with love because that's what our communities need but who can also fight and show people how to be resilient and can share, you know, and it's not even just fighting because there's a real difference between being a fighter because you can be a brawler, right? Mm -hmm. No one can control you. You just get triggered and then you're just (laughs) arms and legs everywhere. But a warrior knows when to fight and when Mm. not to fight. And a warrior knows, actually, this is no fight. Go, go, Go along and do what you're doing. And sometimes a warrior really is needed in a strategic environment and in a strategic battle and they need to be able to fire on all cylinders. So for me, that's what I look for, the potential of that in the person. Um, and that's just conversation. That's mm. what's your passion? What are you doing? What, what, what moves you? What are you inspired by? And what do you want from a coach? If someone says, I want CV writing, I might do that, <laughs> but it ain't going to be long. <laughs> so yeah, it starts at the heart. Oh. And you say you use a psychodynamic approach to it. What is that? On the one hand, it's something very much borrowed from psychology, obviously. Um, And when I did did these MA modules um, at Oxford Brooks University, the very first year that they ran their MA in coaching and mentoring practice, and what really attracted me to that course is that they were talking about adult development. And I was like, say what? (laughs) There's a what? Because, you know, we think about child development. When we talk about young people, we think about youth development. And I was like, there's adult development? What is that? And so the the, the course enabled me to really look at the way adults learn. Mm. And that's really important because adults are constantly learning in the workplace. And the workplace is often where some of these tender warriors are needed because that's where the battleground is often. (laughs) And so for me, it was also about being able to... Um, think about a method of recognising that the workplace and who we are in our workplace is often uh, often comes with our hidden psychodynamic life, our, mm-hmm. our psycho life. You know, what we have on the inside is often what we're bringing every day to the workplace. Absolutely. And if when you've got um, an organisation that might be 40, 50 people, that's a whole heap of something. <laughs> so, you know, how do you navigate through that as uh, even as a as a manager, how do you uh, navigate through that as a leader who's also contributing to that dynamic, yeah. but at the same time you you're charged with empowering people, encouraging them to find their voice, and encouraging them to actually be efficient in your place of work. So the psychodynamic is almost a, like a recognition of who you bring to work, who you bring to your career, who you bring to your relationships with your whether it's your clients or for, in our case, it's, you know, particularly working with young people and working yeah. with the community. So, yeah, the psychodynamic is just about what you have in here and in here that's hidden often shows up that in your That was head and heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Did you have a mentor in your career? No. No? No. Do you but wish you, you, were, you Were you your own mentor? So as you were going, as you were describing your journal, I was like, yeah. I, I know I know that one. <laughs> yeah. That kind of hustle. You that, do two yeah, jobs. You just absolutely. get on with it, and you almost mentor yourself. But there, were, I'm guessing there were people absolutely. along the way yes. that said absolutely, or, or that you could just riff off. My or, world or is full of people who have contributed, who yeah. advise, who talk, who that is very different from mentoring. So yeah. yeah, there are my my career and my life is littered with people who are contributing both in love and mm-hmm. in passion to my world, both professionally and and personally, and particularly a lot of black women that mm-hmm. are also really, really supportive. So but but in terms of mentoring, what I really needed wasn't all always that emotional stuff. What I needed was to know how does an organization work, which is why I ended up in Cumbria and Margate and all over just trying to get inside organizations to think what what makes up the pillars what are the pillars that make up this organization any organization and what makes it sustainable and sometimes that's not what you get from a mentor that's not what you you get from your peers but I wanted that kind of information um, and that's what I would have wanted a mentor to show me why did you become an exec director as opposed to an an actor why behind the scenes as opposed to being on stage 
I, ha- I have acted. Because you said yeah, you wanted yeah, to did, write. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's complicated in a way. And some of that is, you know, I'm, I, as much as I love all that hard skill stuff, you know, I love, put me with some spreadsheets, put me, I love all that <laughs> strategy. I can sit, sit away for days and come out with a programme proposal. I can do, you know, I can do all of that stuff. But I'm also incredibly creative. And again, it goes back to this idea of, you know, these hidden things in our sector where I think and I believe that you're often encouraged to make a choice between those two things. You can either be an administrator who administrates and supports it, or you can be the artist at the receiving end of these systems that that are constantly changing. But I think that's changing. Mm. I think the 21st century, for me and what I'm seeing with some of the people that I'm mentoring and just the artists that are coming through, I'm like, no, it's changing. There's a there's a convergence between those two things. And I think, that, and I think that's necessary because things need to be able to be durable. Is that not also connected to people being able to be a one woman or, or one one man show? So people that sort of write and produce their own plays and then also act in them or you know not just within theatre but across the board people that are just doing everything and I guess the the multiplicity of a millennial generation that just don't put themselves in in the maybe in the same categories that that we do yeah I think that's I think that's true However, I also think it's about being able to recognise all parts of ourselves and all part and the arts being in a position now where it, it, it needs people who can do both. Mm. Um, and it's not just about a choice. It's that there are people that can do can do both because I come across lots of um, I come across lots of actor um producers who, you know, shouldn't be acting and producing. They should okay. just be acting. Mm-hmm. But there is this this um trend. Of, of, of doing that and there are some that really should be doing both and are doing both really really well I just think it's less about personal choices and more about the need for our sector because we need to be able to make work in completely new ways and the makers of work I think over the next 20-30 years will change they will be people who will be coming at it from very different angles not just as careers but also as a place of healing and therefore we need to be able to facilitate in a different way and we need you need to be able to speak the language of everyone that comes in that's definitely our vision for uh, the new building in Brixton the new Oval House is it needs to be a place for everyone because everyone's an artist and everyone should have access and that doesn't mean just participatory that means that there are things within community that also need to fertilize what we do and who we are in terms of professionalizing the work mm. Where do you get your funding from? Where does Oval House sort of generate its income to keep it sustainable and keep it going and keep putting on these amazing productions? Well, we are an, a national portfolio organisation of the Arts Council of England, so we are heavily supported by Arts Council and we raise funds as well um, to be able to run some of our projects. But So, yeah, we, we're, we're stable in that way. <laughs> And so you said uh, you're moving into a new building, but as well as moving into a new building, you are taking it out onto the streets, right? What's happening in September? Tell us about this. So this September will be the third year of a festival that I instigated in my first year in 2015. And Brixton City Festival is all about... Number one, celebrating Brixton, a fantastic place, an iconic place. You can be anywhere in the world and somebody will say to you, you live in London near Brixton. (laughs) Tell me about Brixton. Or they say you're from Northwest London. So there's this real celebration of all things Brixton. And that's about us saying, we are we are your neighbour. We are just down the road and we're moving a little closer and we want to tell everyone how fantastic you are. Um, secondly, it's about recognising that theatre doesn't have to take place in a, in a black box, that it can take place and does take place on the streets and it can still be high quality and it can still be thought-provoking, it can still be relevant, but it can be next to you in your street or at the market store where you buy your fruit and veg every every week. Um, so really key to Brixton City Festival, which is happening this year or the weekend of the 14th of September for three days, is having all of this activity in lots of happening places around the whole of Brixton. So it might be in Brixton Village, it might there might be a, a theatre piece in a, in a pub, there might be something happening at... Uh, uh, a park and there'll be loads of locations across Brixton where we'll be kind of creating these happenings that pop up and and just excite people with the potential of 
culture. And can maybe. people just go be part of them or can you get involved? Do you mean as audiences or do you mean in I terms know, of participation? Can you go watch well, or can you just go, oh, do you know what? I want to be involved in that. The, the thing about Brixton City Festival is, is it's run on a commissioning process. So we yeah. open it out and invite artists to, to oh, submit. Cool. Yeah. And then we kind of curate the the. the festival based on what comes in and at the moment we haven't yet announced uh, um, commissions so mm-hmm. there may be potential that some of them have <laughs> some <laughs> kind of Harriet doing <laughs> jazz hands but for you if you want something yeah, <laughs> yeah. come along yeah. there'll be a reenactment of a, bit, a piece from Love Island <laughs> <laughs> that acclaimed show I just love it so much fun <laughs> just one audience damn it (laughs) (laughs) and when you are in the new building Mm -hmm. what sort of things should we be looking out for what's coming up some of some of you know some of that we're still kind of working on we're still we're still trying to work out um who we are if we change and move and actually physically move space then who does who do we become um and what impact does that have on our artistic policy um so what we know is that there are lots of things that we currently do that we want to make sure that we're still doing in in Brixton. So we definitely will always be radical. We will always be subversive. We will always be looking for those voices that are hidden. We will always be about pushing the boundaries of the type of performance that, that they could be. Um, and that's at the core of who we are. Um, but we're also open to innovation. You know, we also want to be a leading, we want to continue to be a leading organisation. So we're on the lookout for how do we make this innovative? How do we make this um, something that no one else is really doing, but that other people might follow, yeah. other organisations might follow? Um, so for us, there is, you know, there's this idea that there are some spaces that we're not yet at a place where we know what will happen in there, but there will always be fun things to do. There will be classes because we will have two theatre spaces, seven rehearsal spaces. So much activity will be taking place in that building. And finally, how do you feel as somebody who grew up looking at the original building and thinking that was your home, that was what you created? How do you feel about leaving that and moving somewhere else? Yeah, I've started to ask myself this actually really. Like, you know, I'm doing interviews and talking to people on the street and you're like, oh, fantastic it's going to be really nice and then and then really sometimes I'm like oh god actually one of the reasons why I took on the job was because I, I want it to it has to be a delicate operation um because I am conflicted about it I definitely am you know there are there are there are there are so many memories about mm. Overhouse and not just about the theatre you know when you live on a housing estate there's low income poverty is gripping at your parents heels so you never really see them and you're you're what is called a latchkey child and you gather together with all these other latchkey child children and there is a sense of um there is a sense that you're trying to collectively find a way to make sense of the world but you're traumatized you're feeling a little bit neglected you don't necessarily have what your parents might have had which is their parents around so you group together and then you find a place that says you know what come come in come in and we're going to show you something we're going to show you you and there are all these mirrors around and all these p- potentials of what you could be i mean i will miss that being that space for me but I know that in Brixton we will make that for others mm. and that's why I'm conflicted mm. you know because I will lose a little bit of something yeah. but I'm willing to and I want to transfer that around because I think as austerity increases as Brexit is the great unknown there will still be need for young people elders in our community for artists who are really trying to do stuff and they'll be impacted and they'll need a home and they'll have a home with the new Oval House. Wow. Can't wait. Yeah. Stella, if people want to know what's going to be on, where they can find it, how they can get involved, me, (laughs) (laughs) where should they have a look? Um, OvalHouse.com on our website. Yeah. And come in and see us. Come in, come and see a show. Let us know who you are, why you're interested, what you want to do. We're really interested in talking and we are we are very serious about being open. Not too open, so once or twice and we'll talk to you and the third time we'll get security. Um, <laughs> so like we're open but not too open. <laughs> Stella, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Stella Canu, executive producer of the Oval House Theatre.
Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. It's nearly time for us to go, but before we do, uh, we are bringing to you spoken word artist, singer, writer, actress and DJ, Oneness Sankara, to perform B. I used to ask myself why I was here, living in fear, going nowhere, pretending I didn't care. I used to ask myself, how come? Am I the only one don't feel right in the United Kingdom? Sometimes I used to cry, ask myself why, forget it, I'll get high beyond this joint. You see, no matter how hard I tried, the limit stopped at the sky. Life was a lie, so tell me, what was the point? Though once was the oppressed, then became my own oppressor. Rebelled against the system, thought that that would make it better, only to find myself deeper in the game, not using my brain and making the same mistakes again and again. And who was I hurting? Them or me? Not on a plantation, yet I didn't feel free. My vision was blinkered, yet I thought I could see. And in my clouded mind, I tried to fight reality. You see, I began to walk a really thin line. My head was so far up my... I thought that I was doing fine. Thought that I was running out of time. Don't know quite when, but in a moment I heard the bells chime. Remove those shackles from your brain. It's okay, my dear, what you were were temporarily insane. You've not been living your life in vain. You're more than a name, so strip your heart of the guilt and the shame. Remove the chains that bind your soul. Grab a hold, release your spirit and let it take control. My child, I know you're lost trying to find your role. Look deep inside and your strength will multiply tenfold. But what about my hate? What about my anger? What about my pain and what about my lies? What about my past? I'm scared of tomorrow. Let yourself be filled with natural highs. Why are you telling me this? I want it to be easy. I do want more, but the road's too long. Look, I don't want to know no truth and I don't want to be inspired. Just bring me back to where I was without my heart feeling wrong. Now, bring me back to where I was. <laughs> Fam, that was a joke. Best I tied a rope around my neck and tried not to choke. See, I was blindly drifting, definitely broke. Not wanting to acknowledge any spiritual growth, but there was something going on from deep within me. The same thing that was within my ancestry. The thing that picked my people up the many times they fell and it was the same thing that let me know I weren't doing so well. So the fact that I'm here now on this planet, it's a miracle nonetheless. It truly lets me see that I'm undoubtedly blessed. So as I cried out loud, somebody heard my song. It didn't take long. They let me know I wasn't wrong, that I could stand up strong and keep going on and on. So bring me back to where I was. I was brought back to the beginning like a fetus in the womb, feeling the love that I was bringing. Not thinking about life, just simply living. Receiving the protection that my mother was given. Then I was born onto this world and lovingly embraced. Felt my mother's energy when first she saw my face. Equipped with the tools so I could stand the pace as my trust misplaced. My energy raped, treated like a mistake because of colour and race. How much more could I take? What decisions to make? What was going on? I was about to break. And now? And now, all I can do is be. The only person I can be is me. Living in full authenticity simply allowing myself to be free. Wow. Woo! That was so good. One, two, three, four. You've been listening to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. If you liked it, you know what you should do? Subscribe. Then we'll be in your ears every single week. You could also rate and review us. A little five stars makes us happier than anything. Or a lot of five stars. Or a lot. Come talk to us at Badass Women's Hour HR. Tell us what you loved and we'll see you next week. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.